So a man died and he went to the gates of heaven. There was a long line of people hoping to get in and it was St. Peter who was deciding who to let in or not because after all, Jesus gave him the keys, right, to the kingdom of heaven. So, so anyways, uh, the man finally gets to the front of the line and St. Peter asks his name and he gives his name and St. Peter types into the computer because they have computers now in heaven. And um, so the man's, the man's record comes up and, and St. Peter's scrolling through it and it's kind of a, a little bit of a disapproving look on St. Peter's face as he's reading. And he says to the man, he says, you know, it seems like most of your life you've been pretty selfish, um, kind of a mediocre or subpar life. St. Peter said, I'll tell you what. If you can tell me one truly heroic, selfless act that you did, I'll let you into heaven. And the man said, well, Peter, there was this time I was driving along a country road. And I saw alongside of the road a group of bikers, about seven or eight. They had their Harley Davidsons on the side. They had their leather, leather vest, tattoos on their arms. And they were not far from a young woman who seemed to be very frightened of them. So I pulled over to the side of the road. I got out of my car as quickly as I could. I ran in between to stand in between those bikers and that young woman. And I said to them, if any of you think you're going to touch her, you have to get through me first. Well, St. Peter, they laughed at me. I, I was just one, and they were many. They were much bigger than me. And I knew I had to think fast, and I thought, you know, if I can just, if I can take down the leader, maybe the rest of them will be afraid, and they'll, they'll leave. They'll leave us alone. So he looked for the biggest guy there, six foot five, probably 250 pounds. He ran right up to him, punched him in the nose. And um, St. Peter said, wow, that is heroic and selfless, and I, I didn't find it in your record. When, when did this happen? And the man said, about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> so in our gospel today, Jesus tells Simon he's going to give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So does that mean he's some kind of uh, heavenly doorkeeper, letting people in heaven? No. There's, there's another meaning to what we just heard today. Very pivotal passage. This is from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, which is about Jesus entrusting to Simon Peter uh, leadership in the early church, and not just to him personally, but Jesus creating an office which would be occupied from generation to generation, an office uh, which is called by different names, but sometimes we call it the papacy. Now, when he was a baby, his parents named him Simon. That was his name growing up. He was a fisherman in Galilee until he was called by Jesus. He became a companion of Jesus, one of the 12 apostles. And then Jesus changes his name. And whenever we see in the Bible God changes someone's name, it's very significant. It indicates he's giving them a special role or mission. So remember in the Old Testament, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. So here, Jesus says that you are now going to be, he said in Aramaic, kepha, and that means rock. Right? And so in, in Greek, in the New Testament, it's translated to Petrus. Now, to understand the significance of this name, name change, it is helpful to consider the backdrop of this conversation. We are told this is happening in Caesarea Philippi. And you can go now, you can Google that, and you can see images of the ruins of Caesarea Philippi. 
And it was built into a massive rock, 500 feet wide by 200 feet tall. And so this is the backdrop in which Jesus says, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Not only does Jesus give Simon a new name, but he gives him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now in the kingdom of Israel, who was the head honcho? It's not a trick question. In the kingdom of Israel, the king was the head honcho, okay? Right? He says, jump, and you say, how high? But the king did not exercise all of his authority directly over every subject. Rather, he had a cabinet of ministers who assisted him in governing the kingdom. Even we have that today. We don't, uh, in our country, we don't call them ministers. We call them secretaries, right? Secretary of Education or Secretary of Defense. So these similar things existed, offices existed in the kingdom of Israel, but there was one who was over the others, which we heard about in our first reading. The master of the palace or the master of the house, we could think of it as the prime minister of the kingdom of Israel. And in our first reading, it is God speaking through Isaiah to uh, one of the men who occupied that office, a man named Shebna, who was an arrogant man, and God is telling him, your time is soon going to be up, and another will take your place, one named Eliakim. And he will be a father to the people. And guess what the word pope means, actually? Papa means father, basically. Right? So, when uh, someone assumed the office of prime minister in the kingdom of Israel, guess what they received? They received keys. That was the sign of their office. And so this is the background of the conversation that Jesus has with Simon Peter. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is portrayed as the new Davidic king. And so Jesus is instituting in this new kingdom, which was prefigured in the Old Testament, right? This office of prime minister. Uh, and we see in the book of Acts, we see the, uh, the leadership of Peter among the 12 apostles. Now, how do we get from Peter to the popes? Well, Peter went to Rome and died there as a martyr, and so did St. Paul. And so those who became the leaders, the overseers, the bishops of the Roman church were considered successors to Peter and to this office. Now one, one man who succeeded Peter, uh, not long after actually his death, his name was Clement. And Clement wrote a letter to the Christians in Corinth. Now this should ring a bell, right? We know about letters to Corinthians, don't we? Because didn't St. Paul write at least two that we know about? They're part of Scripture. And if you read St. Paul's letters, it seems like the Corinthians are always having squabbles and internal dissensions. Well, this continued even after Paul died, right? So who was Clement? Clement was a bishop of Rome. Now, some scholars date the letter to 96 AD, but I think the arguments are much stronger in favor of an earlier dating, in the year 70 AD. And so, and so Peter and Paul were martyred in the mid-60s. So this is just a few years after their deaths. There is a new bishop of Rome. His name is Clement. And he is writing to address a church far away in Corinth, in Greece, and to intervene in the internal problems that they are having. And they accept his intervention. They accept that he has the authority to correct what's going on in their community. And in fact, they would read that letter at Mass for many years after they received it. And I encourage you, you can Google this again too, 
uh, Clement's letter to the Corinthians. It's a deep, rich letter. It gives you a lot of insight into the church at the very beginning. And one of the things that Clement writes in that letter, he says that our Lord Jesus knew that uh, there would be a, a need for um, people to take the place of the apostles. And so he told the apostles, before you die, you need to appoint successors and to ordain them to be bishops. All right. And so this is a doctrine that we call apostolic succession. And this is very, very important because this is, um, we believe the will of the Lord in how authority would be transmitted over the generations in the church. Okay? So that all the bishops are successors of the apostles, but among them the bishop of Rome has, has leadership among them. Okay? And this is the doctrine, this doctrine of authority, which is, um, which is uh, uh, a disagreement among different Christian groups. So you, you know there are Christians who call themselves Orthodox. So the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, right? So they accept apostolic succession. They, their bishops go back also to the apostles. And they're almost indistinguishable from us in most of their doctrine and practices, except that they don't agree with us on the role of the Bishop of Rome. They think he only has a kind of special honorific role, but not that he has, for example, the power to intervene in other local churches. Then you have the Protestants, right, which began in the 16th century, that reject apostolic succession entirely. They don't believe that this is God's will for leadership in the church. And instead, they say that the Bible, the scripture, is the sole authority uh, in governing the church. And the problem, though, with that view is that um, you can interpret the Bible in many different ways. And people have and are and will continue to have sharp disagreements about important matters of doctrine and they will cite biblical passage in favor of their positions. And so basically, in effect, Protestants, the Protestant individual is the final authority of what scripture means. And they decide for themselves what they think it means and then maybe they align themselves with a congregation that's close to their own interpretation. And I had an interesting um, reminder of this just uh, very recently. A young man wanted to meet with me. He was requesting water baptism. And you may be wondering, well, what other kind of baptism is there? Well, a lot of Protestants talk about baptism in the spirit. And um, he believed that God already baptized him. He received the Holy Spirit, but he's, he's reading his scripture. He's like, I probably need to get a water baptism too, right? And I'm like, yeah, you do. But let's talk about some other things as well. And um, so we started talking about, he believes that, that, that once you're saved, you can't do anything to lose your salvation. You, mean, you could go around, you could murder a million people, never repent, you still are saved, right? And so we went back and forth for a while looking at different scripture passages. And it, it wasn't able, I wasn't able to persuade him. I didn't, have, I didn't have hours and hours to sit with him either. So in any event, but this was just him and his Bible. And I think, yes, he told me that there was teachers on YouTube that were his pastors, right? So... Uh, I actually encouraged him even just to find a Protestant church and be part of a community at least. So he's not just on his own trying to sort these things out. So in any event, so that, there's a problem with that, right? So we can look in God's wisdom for giving us a living authority and a living authority which can help us to interpret scripture and, and tradition in God's will for the church. So 
God gave us then the Pope, a sign and instrument of unity for the church, and gave us the bishops who govern local churches and also together share with the Pope in governance of the universal church. We need to remember, though, that all the bishops, and the Pope included, are all under the authority of Christ. And Christ's revelation is given to us in Scripture and tradition, and so they are under the authority of Scripture and tradition as well. In 1870, the First Vatican Council gave a teaching on the Pope's role and included this statement, quote, For the Holy Spirit was promised to the successors of Peter, not so they might, by his revelation, make known some new doctrine, but that by his assistance they might religiously guard and faithfully expound the revelation or deposit of faith transmitted by the apostles, end quote. We can see it's an essentially kind of conservative function to preserve what Christ has given to his church. So I'm grateful that God gave the church the papacy, and it's one of the reasons, as I said, distinguishes us as Catholics from the Orthodox or the Protestants. But we should also be honest and willing to admit that there have been some really bad popes in history. If you study church history, there's some popes who were scoundrels, financially corrupt, worldly, sexually corrupt, making disastrous, terrible decisions. Now, many of the popes, I think the majority have been saintly and good, but there's quite a few in certain periods of time where there were some really bad popes. It's quite possible there are some popes right now suffering in hell. You may know the poet Dante, right? And in his, um, his uh, section of his great poem about uh, the inferno, I think he places at least five popes in hell. <laughs> uh, these were people he didn't like for different reasons, and he, he gets, he's the author of the poem, he gets to put them there, but he's not necessarily you know, uh, infallible in terms of that. But it gives us a sense that Catholics before used to realize this fact, right? Just because someone sits in the chair of Peter, it doesn't make them a saint. It certainly doesn't make them right about everything. Now, there are also times, believe it or not, where Catholics didn't know who the true Pope was. So there were different groups of cardinals that had meetings and they voted for different guys. And even saints would disagree, right? But over time, the church passed through those messy times. Things got resolved. They were able to realize, okay, this was the Pope and this was the anti-Pope. And, and so I think it's important, rather than just looking at a, a snapshot, a moment in the church's history, uh, to see the importance of the papacy, we look at the larger arc of history and we see how, how the popes and bishops, God has uh, worked through them to preserve the faith and to preserve unity in the church. Now I confess that I find many things that Pope Francis says and does to be confusing and ambiguous. Uh, there are people he's appointed to positions of great influence which I think are not suitable. They have many public statements and things um, that they have done, which in my view would seem to disqualify them for high office in the church. The Pope has a different view on that. The Pope has said certain things which, to my reading, directly contradict things that his immediate predecessors have said. Whatever my disappointment with him, I love the Pope, I pray for him, and I respect the office of the papacy. And its importance came across to me in a unique way yesterday. We had, a, uh, we had a retreat for our high school core team, these young leaders, which is an astounding group of young people. And 
Each of them gave a witness talk about five minutes on an aspect of their faith journey. And one of the young men shared a very recent experience when he went to World Youth Day in Lisbon, Portugal. And he said this made a huge impact on him because he got to see the universal church. Catholics from all over gathered, and yes, gathered around the Pope. And he says, I was standing there and the Pope was like where that door is right now. And he was so excited about that. And so whatever the individual strength or weakness of a Pope, I think still the Pope serves, right, as this visible icon of Christian unity. Simon Peter answered for us the most important question that can be posed, right? Jesus asking, who do you say that I am? And we always need to answer with Simon Peter, not just with our words, but with our way of life. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God.